Chapter Twelve of From France to Scandinavia by Frank G. Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Restaurants and Cafes. The Owl. Paris has more than ten thousand hotels, and there are restaurants in every block and cafes at almost every step. At nearly all the restaurants, one is sure of good cooking, and he can dine well anywhere and at almost any price. In the high-class places, the meals cost as much as in the best hotels of New York, and when one orders a la carte, he can easily run up the bill for his dinner, even without wines, to five dollars. Half a fried chicken will cost him three dollars. I had a little side dish of asparagus yesterday at the Continental Hotel that cost fourteen francs, and judging by the price of green peas on the menu, they ought to bring the French farmer ten dollars a bushel. A small section of a cantaloupe, one-eighth, I should say, is priced at one dollar, and a fat rosy peach costs fifty cents. In this and similar places, one can get a table d'hote meal for two or three dollars, but most Americans prefer to lunch and dine a la carte. In the cheaper restaurants, one gets a good dinner for fifty or seventy-five cents, including a small bottle of red or white wine. At the cafes, which are really saloons without bars, where coffee, syrups, lemonade, beer, wines, and liqueurs are served upon tables, either inside or out on the sidewalk, the prices range from ten cents upward per drink, and if one is a gentleman, he will give two cents or more as a tip to the waiter. If he does not, the waiter may ask it. The usual tip is about ten percent of each order. The cafes are one of the features of Paris. They are frequented by men and women and also by families. They are the clubs where friends meet day after day at the same hour and often at the same table. Here one reads his newspaper or chats or plays chess or checkers. The cafe is also a favorite meeting place where one can write a letter on paper provided by the establishment until his sweetheart or wife keeps her appointment. Many of them have music at certain hours, and some have songs and dances. They are to be found in every part of Paris, especially on the boulevards, near the railway stations, and on the main thoroughfares. The first breakfast, consisting of coffee or tea and bread and butter, is served in many cafes, and in some one can have a substantial meal. They are usually open as early as seven o'clock in the morning, and many serve drinks until two hours after midnight. There is no city in Europe that eats more per person and has better food or such a variety of good things on its tables as Paris. The Parisians consume many millions of pounds of fish every year. They annually eat 11,000 tons of oysters and vegetables and about 30 million pounds of excellent butter. They consume 40 million pounds of fruit, a large part of which comes from Spain and Algeria, and they eat so much cheese obtained from all parts of Europe, that it would take about 35,000 horses to haul it in wagons over one of the rough roads of the States. In order to see just how the French tables are provided, we shall spend this morning in the Halle Centrale, which comprise perhaps the largest market house in the world. Covent Garden in London does not cover half as much ground, and the markets of Berlin, New York, and Vienna are small in comparison. And still, this is not the only market of Paris. There are smaller ones scattered here and there throughout the city. There are market stores everywhere, and outside the walls 
all sorts of eatables are displayed for sale at lower rates than inside as the dealers there do not have to pay the octroi tax charged upon everything that comes in the Yale centrale are in the heart of the city not far from the seine and within a stone's throw of the louvre they consist of ten huge pavilions made of iron and glass each large enough for a great exposition they cover more than twenty-two acres and have more than three thousand different stalls between the pavilions run covered streets and under the halls are cellars for the storage of goods the front pavilions are chiefly for retailers while those behind are for the wholesale trade which in the early morning overflows into the streets the congressional library at washington one of the fine buildings of the world costs six million dollars and our national capital which covers half as much ground as the all cost about thirteen millions the all are mere shells but they cost ten million dollars when they were built and it would take twice that to produce them today they belong to the city to which the market people pay rent for their stalls the business of supplying the all begin at nine or ten o'clock every night when heavily laden wagons carts and trucks containing all sorts of eatables begin coming into the city not so long ago many of the farmers brought in their produce in wheelbarrows and small donkey carts they had also huge carts holding one or two tons and hauled by percheron horses hitched tandem the latter are still to be seen though they are fast being replaced by motor trucks and by steam locomotives which haul box cars through the city our visit to the al is made at five o'clock in the morning we get there in time to see the wholesale selling which lasts only from three until eight a m the sales are by auction meat vegetables and fish being knocked down in lots to the highest bidders as we enter the al we pass men carrying all sorts of things in and out some have on hats as big around as a parasol and resting upon them are crates of suckling pigs fowls and rabbits some carry a whole sheep or a hog on their backs most of these porters wear the red stocking caps of their profession and also long butcher's aprons once white but now stained and bloody others bring in great baskets of vegetables everyone is pushing this way and that and we are hustled and jostled about as we make our way through we stop first at the fowl hall where chickens ducks and rabbits are sold by the crate there are thousands of partridges and pheasants and other game of all sorts about each auctioneer stands a crowd of french peasants the men wearing short coats and long baggy corduroy trousers and the women black shawls and long full black skirts all bid loudly for the various lots the auctioneers knock down the goods rapidly it takes thirty seconds to sell a crate of suckling pigs and less for one of chickens or ducks in this part of the market butter and eggs are auctioned the eggs come in great boxes which are stacked on the floor each box contains one thousand eggs and the stock on hand this morning totals millions i stop later at one of the retail stands and ask the price of eggs they bring seven or eight cents and upward apiece or seventy or eighty cents a dozen on a farm eighty miles from paris i recently bought some for half that amount these french know how to use eggs they make delicious egg dishes which are hardly known in america and as a result the egg consumption of paris is enormous the eggs are usually good i have yet to get a bad one and most of them are open to the objection of the newsboy 
when he refused his first fresh egg served during a trip in the country. He said, "'Tain't right. It don't smell and it ain't got no taste. It is the same with the butter. It is made without salt and must therefore be good or it will not keep long. Here in the market it is sold at wholesale in 22-pound balls. What is that smell wafted to our nostrils from over the way? It has a cheesy nature, although it lacks the authority of Limburger. We cross over and enter another great pavilion, where the auctioneers are selling cheeses of every description. They have them made from sheep or goat's milk, camembert, roquefort, gorgonzola, and brie, and the little rolls of petite suisse, which are soft as unworked butter. There are also the white wagon wheels of Gruyere and the red balls of Edam cheese from Holland. Our next walk is among the fishwives, who have a whole pavilion. Each woman has marble counters about her, on which are set out almost every eatable thing that swims in the sea or crawls on the land. The fish are laid out in neat rows, and fresh mackerel is sold at 25 cents a pound. There are great lobsters so displayed that they look like a regiment drawn up for review, and there are also vats of running water in which eels are squirming about. If you want to buy one, the woman will dip out a netful and let you take your choice. As we wait, the guy tells us that the eels are all caught outside of Paris because the river Seine here is so winding they will not enter the city for fear of breaking their backs. You remember the old nursery rhyme? What are little boys made of? Frogs and sails and puppy dog tails? That's what little boys are made of. And what are little girls made of? Sugar and spice and everything nice. That's what little girls are made of. Well, about all these things are for sale in the Al Central. I will not vouch for the puppy dog tails, although I know they are eaten in China, for I have seen them cooking over the fire in the restaurants of Canton on the ends of the dog carcasses being baked for the diners. But as to frogs and snails, nowhere are more eaten than right here in fastidious France. The frogs are brought to the market both dead and alive. In preparing them, the hind legs and a part of the back are cut off and skinned. The legs are then strung by the dozen on a wooden stick to be sold at so much a bunch. The frog industry is quite important to France. There are 117 different kinds of frogs, and the two especially edible ones are the green and the red. The green frog is the one most eaten. It is found wherever there are swamps or ponds, and on the margins of rivers and in bays that contain fresh or only slightly brackish water. It feeds on worms, flies, and insects, and especially on the spawn and small fry of fish. The Paris supply comes mostly from the neighborhood and from southwestern France and Lorraine. The red frog is of a reddish-brown color mottled with green and brown spots. It lives mainly on the land and takes to the water only in winter and during the spawning season. It loves damp locations near ponds and water courses. The American bullfrog is not known here. It is larger than the French frog, and the French who have tasted it say it is superior to theirs. But come with me and look at the snails. Over there is a booth with a great golden snail hanging above it and boxes of live snails on the counter. The smaller ones bring 30 cents per hundred, but the fat ones sell for double that price. They do not look appetizing to me as they crawl about in their boxes, but the French think they are perfectly delicious when served hot with melted butter. The snails are served in the shell like oysters. 
They are picked out with tiny forks and well chewed before swallowing. I find them not bad to taste, but for me quite indigestible. Paris eats almost two million pounds of snails like these every year. Snail raising is a regular business, and I understand that half a million of the first quality can be grown on one acre of ground. They are fed once a day, usually in the evening. They are particularly hungry after a rain, when a bed of 100,000 snails will consume a wheelbarrow load of cabbage. Some of the best are fed also on wine dregs or bran soaked in wine to give them a special flavor, just as our best chickens have a milk diet and our finest flavored hams are from peanut-fed hogs. The snails are kept in houses during the winter. There are farmers in the department of Jura who raise two million snails every year. I am told they ship them to the United States and to parts of Latin America. The snails usually cross the ocean alive in November or December and must be carefully handled to withstand the voyage. Switzerland also is a famous snail market. It has its exporters and farmers and its crop is especially popular. Leaving the snails, we go to the flower market located between two of the largest pavilions. Here, flowers are sold at prices that the ordinary customer can pay. I see roses at three cents apiece, bouquets of sweet peas for 10 cents, and carnations for little more. The stalls have every kind of flower one can imagine, and they come in from all over the Republic. Many are raised in the gardens and hothouses near Paris, but during the winter, a special train, popularly called the Cut Flower Limited Express, brings flowers from southern France to this city. It has 10 cars at the start, and some of these are switched off here to Frankfurt, Berlin, and Munich. One car goes to Brussels and another to Calais, where it crosses the channel on a ferry to supply the markets of London and Manchester. A great many flowers are sent by parcel post from the same region. The total is more than a million packages of cut flowers per annum, and the value is in the neighborhood of $8 million. But how about hooch? asks one of the bibulous men of our party, as he quotes from Bishop John Still, who lived at the time when the monks had great reputations as wine-bibbers. I cannot eat but little meat. My stomach is not good, but sure I think that I can drink with him that wears a hood. In reply, we are led to a great pavilion piled high with casks, barrels, and cases of wines and liquors of every variety. The soil of much of France is just right for grapes, and the wines excel any produced upon earth since old Noah began to be a husbandman and planted a vineyard on the slopes of Mount Ararat. A million and a half people are employed in grape growing, and the French vintage has for years brought in more than a third of a billion dollars per year. In France, almost everyone drinks wine. In employing a house servant, one must provide a bottle of ordinary wine per day as a part of his or her food. Before it is taken, the wine is usually mixed with water, and it is so light that it is claimed there is but little drunkenness in France. This is true with respect to intoxication of the rip-roaring stage. One seldom sees a man reeling along the street, as is common in some parts of London, and drunken women are nowhere in evidence. Nevertheless, the French peasants drink a great deal of wine, and often consume much stronger liquors. Some of them patronize the cafes and saloons to such an extent that they are sodden with liquor a great part of the time, and it is very much a question 
whether the use of light wines and beers is as conducive to temperance as some people claim until recently france had practically a monopoly of the wine export trade one of her chief markets was the united states and our prohibition laws have seriously affected the industry it has decreased the exports of france to america by something like four million dollars a year and now about the only wine exports are champagnes which have been flowing into america to the value of about one hundred thousand dollars per month on the grounds that they are needed for medicine and this brings me to the champagne cellars of Reims, which sheltered so many people during the war and which for generations have supplied most of the champagne consumed in the world during the war the buildings of the great wine factories were destroyed but the cellars were unharmed as the germans occupied the city only a week and their shells did no damage to the great cave-like excavations in the chalk rock the result is that the cellars are practically intact so that the industry did not suffer permanent injury during my stay in Reims last week i visited one of these wine catacombs walking through mile after mile of the tunnels which cross each other this way and that forming great avenues far under the ground each walled with bottles of champagne the establishment was that of the palmery company whose champagne we all knew before a great drought began it has eleven million bottles now in the making and the underground passages in which the wine lies curing are more than ten miles in length i went through the tunnels with the manager of the company and as we inspected these long avenues of bottles he told me a little about how champagne is made his story explains the high cost of the wine it is made of black grapes which came from forty different vineyards in the champagne country the grapes are first pressed and the skins removed the white juice is then blended in a mighty hogshead or tun which holds twenty thousand gallons of liquor as i stood beside it at the entrance to the caves it towered above me like a house excepting the huge tun at heidelberg germany it is the world's largest wine pot the blending continues six months and after that the liquor takes from four to six years to run through the process that makes it into champagne the fermentation goes on in the bottles which are set in racks and which after four or five years are shaken every day for six weeks to get the sediment down to the cork the sediment is then artificially frozen and taken out as a small cake of ice after that some sweetening is added or some special liqueur put in to give the desired flavor the bottle is then recorked under great pressure and packed away one year later it is ready for sale end of chapter twelve